We come to Psalm 144. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. A psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. My loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters. From the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words, and whose right hand is at a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in the palace style. That our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce. That our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. That our oxen may be well laden. That there be no breaking in or going out. That there be no outcry in our streets. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. Gracious God in heaven, we do rejoice and give thanks to you for the great gift that you have given to us in your word, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage, this psalm this morning, we ask, Father, that you would truly, by your spirit, help us to see and understand the truth that is here, the blessing and the comfort that is here, the challenge that is here. And so we ask now for that blessing to be poured out upon us as your word goes forth in the power of the Spirit. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you happy? Think about all that's going on in the world. There's wars and disasters, poverty, disease, and corruption, just to to name a few. Are you still happy? How about when you consider what's happening in our own nation? There's rampant immorality and godlessness, violence and hatred, the calling of good things evil, and evil things are being called good. How's your happiness hanging in there? Consider what's happening in the broader church, where it's becoming indistinguishable from the world. 
There's a great neglect of the Word of God. There's a proliferation of false doctrine like the, the health and wealth, prosperity, legalism, antinomianism, and even the corruption of federal vision and false views of justification that have been creeping into Reformed churches. Still happy? And of course, I'm zooming in a little more personally, what about your own lives? The trials and the challenges that you're facing. Maybe health concerns, maybe financial issues, maybe troubles in relationships. And then of course there's the seemingly unrelenting temptations and assaults of the evil one that are come at you each and every day. As you consider all these things, are you happy? But certainly these things are not pleasant. And I doubt that any one of us is happy about them, especially when we know that they're ultimately a result of uh, the curse of sin in the world and the misery that it reaps in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Indeed, we ought not to be happy about the sinfulness in the world. But what if there was a way that we could still maintain a sense of, of happiness in spite of all these things? in spite of sin and in spite of sin's corruption. Now, in order to achieve this kind of happiness, we must uh, first uh, eschew the superficial feeling of happiness that's popular today. It is the the happiness that is expressed as a a fleeting emotion dependent on the uh, ever-changing circumstances around you. Or maybe it's dependent upon your perception of those circumstances driven by your current mood, which then also shifts like the wind. This isn't the kind of happiness that we're talking about. No, biblical happiness is firm and sure more a state of of being than purely emotion-driven. The biblical word for happiness carries with it a sense of contentment and, and even blessedness that remains despite the ever-changing circumstances and conditions around us. This is because the source of biblical happiness isn't within ourselves. It's not within our own fallen sinful natures, nor is it found within the objects and the things of this created world. No, the source of biblical happiness is the one who blesses and graciously pours out great gifts upon us. This is the truth that David reveals to us in Psalm 144. The source and foundation of a happy people is in the Lord God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, the one true living God who doesn't change, but is always faithful and true. In this psalm, David defines for us who the happy people are. And he calls all who read or sing this psalm to join with him in acknowledging the one sure foundation of that happiness. But to start, we want to begin actually with the very end of the psalm in verse 15. Because we want to first see what that foundation of happiness is. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Now here David summarizes true happiness and we'll consider later uh, the state that he's referring to. 
The short of it being the blessings enjoyed by God's people stir within a sense uh, of happiness and delight. But the only reason these circumstantial blessings bring happiness is because of the truth declared in the second part of the verse. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Now if you note there, the word Lord is in small capital letters. And if you remember, this tells us that this is the covenant name of God. Jehovah or Yahweh, the, the God who revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush as, I am that I am. He is the God who is. The God who exists. This is the one true God. The one true God who graciously entered a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants after them. The God who made the promises that He would build His people up into a great nation, that He would give them a land to call their own, and that through them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The God who redeemed His people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. Indeed, He bought them with a price, declaring, You will be My people, and I will be your God. This covenant was rooted in the abounding grace of God, since they were the smallest and least significant of all nations, and yet God chose them and bestowed His covenant love upon them. This is God the Lord. He is the source and foundation of all happiness and contentment. And friends, this is assured even for us today. Not because of our physical heritage or descendancy, but because of the new covenant made with us through faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, by faith we know that we are Abraham's seed and descendants of Abraham, so that the covenant promises that were made to Abraham long ago ultimately belong to all who believe in Christ Jesus, to us and to our children. Those covenant promises are our promises. Well, this leads us to another important aspect of this happiness. Not only do they acknowledge God as the Lord, as the covenant God, the one true living God, but by grace through faith we must acknowledge this covenant God to be our God. We must stake our claim on Him. And this, of course, is what David does in verses 1 and 2 with his repeated use of of the, uh, the possessive pronoun my. My rock, my loving kindness, my fortress, my high tower, my deliver, my, my, my. Here he's expressing that second part of that covenant language. That we will be God's people and He will be our God. He's my God. Staking this claim involves grabbing hold of the covenant promises that God has made as being our promises. They belong to us. And we stake this claim when we publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ and unite ourselves to a local visible body of believers. And friends, this is important, especially especially for you young people. For even if you grew up in, in the church and received covenant baptism as an infant, we know that that baptism didn't save you. But it's a sign and seal of being included in God's covenant of grace. And at that time, you became part of the covenant community, and thus the covenant promises and the obligations belong to you. 
The promises are that you're engrafted into Christ, that your sins will be washed and cleansed, and that you will receive grace to walk in newness of life. But baptism also places upon you not just the promises, but also the obligation of repentance from sin and professing faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at your baptism, your parents and the congregation promise to, uh, to teach and instruct you in the way of the Lord, praying with a view toward the day when you would, by God's grace, claim those promises as your own and publicly professing your faith in Christ. Acknowledging that Jesus didn't ju- just die for sinners, Generally, but Jesus died for me. Jesus died for my sins. Not just the sins of somebody over there, but Jesus died for my sins. And that I now must now humbly rely on His all-sufficient grace as I commit myself to following Him. That's the obligation that belongs to God's covenant children claiming those promises to be your very own. By professing faith in Christ, we stake our claim on Christ, even as He has first graciously claimed us as His own people. And from the grace bestowed upon us through faith in Christ, we're given this foundation of eternal happiness that the Lord is not only the one true living God, and we can take great comfort in that truth, but that not just that, but He's my God, He's my Lord. I have an eternal inheritance, a blessed inheritance in Him. And so with this foundation said, We go to the beginning of the psalm to unpack the state of blessing those who have the Lord as their God and joy. Indeed, such happy people have the Lord as their strength. And we see this in the list of symbols that David ascribes not only to God, but to, again, to his God, to my God. The Lord is my rock. That is, he's a a solid foundation of strength and support for me that's unmovable. He provides sure and certain footing in the midst of storms so that I might be safe. Unlike the sinking sand of those who don't have the Lord as their God. And the Lord is my loving kindness. And this refers back to God being the covenant God who is forever faithful and true to the promises that He's made. Not only are these promises secure... But they're rooted in the everlasting mercy and grace of God's infinite, eternal character. He truly will never fail us. Next, the Lord is my fortress. He's my stronghold, my fortification, which provides protection and safety amidst the assaults of the enemy. We know a fortress isn't easily overcome. It's well protected and guarded. The Lord is my fortress. My high tower is similar, yet here there's the advantage of of being elevated and, and out of reach of enemy attacks. But the height also enables clear uh, sight of the enemy's approach. So you're never caught unawares. Indeed, God has given us His Word to be able to discern trouble 
when it comes and the assaults of the enemy when they come. This is what the Lord provides for His people. He's also my deliverer. Now this refers to those occasions where the assaults may come in in such force that you may think that you're going to be overwhelmed by them. But the happy people have the Lord as their deliverer who always provides a way of escape. That even when tempted and tried by the evil one, the Lord always provides a way out. Because He's our deliverer. Likewise, the Lord is my shield. A shield protects the happy one from the arrows and fiery darts of the enemy. And Paul, of course, in Ephesians 6, and we'll look at this a little bit later, refers to it as the shield of faith that protects us. And faith itself, we know, is a gift of God. The Lord is also a refuge. It's my place of rest, comfort, and renewal. And then finally, David refers to the Lord as as a warrior who subdues people under him. Now note the word my, my people, and this likely refers for David uh, over uh, those who, over whom David ruled, right? They were they they were subdued under him, not in a negative way, but they were they were good and obedient citizens. And of course, this maybe the sense here is that this is even after Absalom's rebellion. They're not rising up against him. Now, all these symbols have one thing in common, other than that personal possessive pronoun. David is here describing, describes the Lord providing strength for his people. And we know David has experienced this many times before. In fact, we can find many of the same descriptions scattered throughout the Psalms. And in fact, most of these, and almost all, and an identical list is found in, in Psalm 18. And Psalm 18 is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving for how the Lord had delivered David from all his enemies at the time, including Saul. Well, here David seems to be recalling that earlier time as he's now faced with new dangers and and enemies. With the Lord as his strength, though, even as he faces these enemies, David can be happy and content. And we know David was a brave warrior. Even at a young age, he had a, a spirit of unparalleled boldness and courage. For example, when he faced the giant Goliath with nothing but a, a sling and some stones. <clears throat> So why would he need strength from the Lord? We might wonder, wasn't he strong enough on his own? Well, absolutely not. In fact, he acknowledges this here. Outside of the Lord his God, he's nothing but a frail warrior who will be easily consumed in battle. And we see this first in verse 1, when he says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now, two things to note about this. First, David wasn't naturally a warrior, and he was a young shepherd boy. He was skilled at caring for sheep and leading and guiding the sheep. He was not skilled in the art of war. Yes, again, he was brave, and he accounts that he had to protect the sheep on occasion from lions and bears, but but that's not the same as going up against a whole trained army of enemies. No, David had to learn the skill of war. 
And he learned it not from his father or his brothers. Remember, they wanted him to stay way far from the, uh, from the battlefield. Nor did David learn it from King Saul. He thought that simply loading a young boy up with heavy armor would be sufficient training that he would need. No, David learned to fight and engage in battle as he fully trusted in the Lord. Whether it was with the sword or with a sling and stones, David learned to enter every battle in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. David's strength was from the Lord. It wasn't his own. And this was critical for David to learn and acknowledge because we also note from this that engaging in war was part of the Lord's calling on David's life. And if he hadn't learned war, if he hadn't trusted and acknowledged the Lord as his strength, again, he would have quickly been consumed in battle right at the very start. He would have been defeated by the giant Goliath. But because of his faith in the Lord as his rock, as his fortress, as his high tower, as his deliverer, and so on, the Lord through David secured many victories over his enemies, with foreign and domestic, securing the kingdom and the peace of Israel. So David was called to be a warrior. Now you may be thinking, well, great, David was a warrior. But what about me? Why do I need the Lord as my rock, my refuge, my strength, my fortress? He's not calling me to take up the sword and and fight and battle to secure the peace of the land. Well, maybe not in the literal sense. But brothers and sisters, we know that the Lord has called each of us, that is all those in Christ, to be spiritual warriors. Indeed, each and every day we engage in battles with enemies, but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. Indeed, this is why Paul, shortly after this, goes on to charge that we must then put on the full army, the armor of God. Not the armor of our own strength, not the armor of our own wisdom, our own skills, but the spiritual armor of God. The girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the very Word of God. God provides this armor because we must engage in these spiritual battles against sin against temptation and against all the wiles of the evil one. And because of the Lord's provision, because we acknowledge that He's our only strength, well, we can be happy and content even as we engage in these fierce battles. You see, because we know we don't enter the battle alone, but the Lord our God goes with us. David needed this strength. And friends, so do we. But we also see David and indeed ourselves as frail creatures. When we consider David's meditation in verses 3 and 4, not only must must, uh, he be trained for war, but he says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him, 
Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. David acknowledges frailty and weakness as a mere creature limited by time and space. Now we find similar words here to Psalm 8, uh, verse 4. But in Psalm 8, the focus is on God's grace, that, that though mankind is a lowly creature... Yet God has highly exalted him and, and given him charge over all creation as, as God had done with Adam entrusting all creation to his care before the fall. Well, this rightly then, Psalm 8 is rightly then taken by the writer to the Hebrews as pointing toward Christ who, though coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, was highly exalted when he ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father after his death and resurrection on our behalf. Well, here in Psalm 144, though Christ isn't completely out of view, the focus is simply on man's lowliness as a creature. And that for all the greatness that we may look to ascribe to ourselves, our lives are but a mere breath in the limitless expanse of all eternity. No exaltation, just lowliness. But you see, God's grace is made clear here as well. For though we are weak creatures, it's still a great wonder that God would be so mindful of us. That He'd not only strengthen us for the battle, but that He'd also send His own beloved Son, even Jesus, to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, to endure the sin and misery of this world, and to plunge into the depths of humiliation when He gave His own life and He breathed His last to accomplish the salvation that we could not achieve on our own. So the point of all this then is that God, God is so pleased to train our hands And strengthens us to fight the fierce battles that we engage in every day against Satan and his temptations. But we're fighting these battles. Friends, we're fighting these battles in a war where Christ has already gained for us the ultimate victory. And truly we can then be happy and content then when we face these daily battles. Because we we know who it is who strengthens us. Our God, the one true living God, my God, the covenant God. And we acknowledge that He's already gained that victory for us. So we would have much to be happy and content about, even engaging in these battles. Well, finally we see the happy people are those who acknowledge that the Lord is sovereign over all things, working all things for our good and His glory. In verses 5-8, through eight, we see God's sovereign power on display. The heavens He's able to bring low, and He can make the mountains shake, tremble, and smoke with just one touch. He can send forth lightning like arrows across the sky, and hitting the earth to scatter and destroy His enemies. He can stretch out His hand over all the earth so that no matter where His people are, when they cry out to Him for help, He is there able to save and to rescue them. Again, this same description is also found in Psalm 18. 
But there was a testament of, of what God had already done to secure David victory. But here, David seems to be recalling that earlier time and is asking the Lord to now do the very same thing he had done before now that he's facing a new threat. And it's calling God to act as he has previously acted to secure deliverance and bring help in time of need is one of the great blessings of God's sovereign power that brings a sure and certain happiness and contentment in times of trouble. Because we can call God and call upon the Lord and ask, Lord, you saved me back here when I had this trouble. Do it again. And He'll do it. Because He's faithful and true. Well, at the present time, David's troubles, we see that they're foreign enemies who appear to be overwhelming him as great waves that would come crashing down upon him. And Foreign enemies indicates, of course, that they're not of the house of Israel. So it's not Saul, it's not Absalom, likely it's the the Philistines or maybe some other heathen nation. And the plea of verses 7 and 8 is repeated again in verse 11 to emphasize not only the severity of the situation, and we've seen examples of that uh, in the other Psalms that we studied this summer, where the repetition is to, to show just the desperateness of the situation. It does that here, but it also is meant, intended to display and, and emphasize the wickedness of his enemies. And instead of speaking blessings, they speak forth lies and vain and empty words. And at their right hand, the right hand typically being the hand of honor, the hand extended in truth, the hand uh, extended for peace to make an agreement. Nothing comes from the right hand but falsehood and deceit and treachery. Possibly he's indicating there was maybe some treaty that was broken. But whatever the situation, David looks not to his own skill, not to his own strength and military might, but he cries out to the Lord to shake the heavens and the earth if he must, to bring an end to his enemies, to rescue him, and to save him from destruction. Now what a remarkable request. And we may wonder, could we make such a, a bold request of God to deliver us from our enemies, to, uh, to come to our, our aid in our time of need by shaking the heavens and the earth? Well, indeed we could. And in fact, when we consider what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and the salvation that He has secured for us in Christ... We know that He already has shaken the foundations of heaven and earth to secure our salvation. Consider the great condescension that David calls the Lord to make in order to save and deliver him. He says, bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. He wants the Lord to come down out of heaven to save him. Beloved, this is precisely what God through Jesus Christ has done for us. The eternal Son of God in His place of glory bowed the heavens low and came down, becoming flesh, so that He might truly identify with us in our sin and our misery, being tempted and tried in all ways that we are yet without sin. He came down and He humbled Himself, even to the point of the painful and shameful death of the cross, at which time the earth shook. And remember, the heavens 
grew dark as the just wrath and curse of God for our sin was poured out upon His beloved Son. And though Jesus died, we know that death didn't hold Him. But He rose from the dead on the third day as the earth quaked again. And then the heavens once again bowed down and opened now to receive Him as He was taken up in glory 40 days later to sit at the right hand of God the Father where He even now reigns and rules over all things for our good and His glory. And because the Lord has done this for us, accomplishing for us this great salvation, well then our response and commitment ought to be similar. Our happiness and gratitude at God's salvation is to be expressed in praise. Verse 9 and 10, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Now the new song here isn't really a, a new song as as in a, it's not a new composition. Right? If you study the term new song as it's used in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, mostly it's the references are in the Psalms. And in the New Testament, we find it the new song mentioned in the book of Revelation. If you study those passages, you see that the new song is simply the song of salvation. It's the song that people of God sing in response to God's deliverance and salvation. And it's new in the sense that it's sung new each time that salvation is experienced by the people of God in every generation. By kings, by David, the servant of the Lord, and even by us, the undeserving sinners that we are who walk in newness of life through faith in Jesus Christ. We sing praise to God for the salvation God has sovereignly secured for us through Jesus And we sing praise to God to truly demonstrate that we are a happy people indeed. But we also see in verses 12 to 14 that the happy people are those who acknowledge that the Lord is sovereign in richly and abundantly blessing His people even far beyond what we can possibly imagine. Note note the three manifestations of this blessing which certainly isn't uh, comprehensive. First, there's the prosperity in the home. As, as sons grow and flourish like strong, strong, sturdy plants, and daughters are strengthened and arrayed in beauty. Now, certainly strong sons and beautiful daughters are a blessing to any family, especially those who are strong in the Lord and in faith, and those whose beauty is marked by godliness and truth. Such blessings only come from the Lord and His grace. They're not our doing. Second, there's the blessing of prosperity and provisions. Barns full of grain and produce. Sheep and cattle that produce and reproduce so that there's food and nourishment uh, always available. Showing us that the Lord faithfully sustains and provides for His people all that they truly need. Thirdly, there's the prosperity of peace in the community. There be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in our streets. So, no enemy assaults. No one goes out to war. The violence and distress is gone from the city streets. Why? Because the enemy has been defeated. Now, we know in this life, 
that we may strive for such blessings. And certainly in God's abundant grace and mercy, we may even experience and enjoy them for a time. But we know that ultimately, the blessings the Lord promises are not material goods. They're not blessings of this world. That the blessings which endure are the spiritual blessing that the Lord provides. Eternal communion and fellowship with Him and His people. The all-sufficient grace that is needed to sustain and strengthen us in what He has called us to do. And one day, we do look forward to that future glory when every tear will be washed away and every enemy defeated. Think about it. No more death. No more sorrow. No more crying and no more pain. And the only outcry in the streets will be a happy, joy-filled praise lifted up to the Lord our God. Beloved, this is the sure and certain hope that marks the true people of God. The happy people who are in such a state that regardless of what their earthly circumstances may be, they're confident that something far greater is yet to come. No reason then to fret or fear. Happy are they who acknowledge God's sovereign power to save and bless. Happy are they who acknowledge that the Lord alone is their strength. Happy are they whose God is the Lord. Truly may the Spirit of the living God so bless you in His grace that you embrace these promises as your own and that you would enjoy them with such unwavering happiness. Not just now, but forever and ever to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to You, Lord, for the great reminder from Your Word that You are the source and the foundation of our happiness, our joy, our hope in this life and most certainly in eternity. That as we acknowledge You and Your sovereign power to save and deliver, as we rely fully upon You for Your strength to fight in the battles that You have set before us to fight, that we claim You as our God, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as our refuge, our fortress, our refuge in the midst of this troubled world. Father, we pray that truly Your Spirit would apply these truths to each of our hearts and that we would claim these promises as our own and that You would truly pour out upon us that sure and certain happiness and eternal joy that will never be taken away, no matter what happens around us, because You, the source of that joy and happiness, do not change. And so we praise You and thank You, Lord, for this good gift, this good encouragement. And we pray again that Your Spirit would apply these truths to our hearts 
drawing us all closer to yourself, that we might truly glorify your name in all that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.